Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. For those of you who are not uh, members or students of the university, welcome to the University of Bath. And I, I'm Nick Pearce. I'm um, the director of the Institute for Policy Research here at the university. And um, part of what we do in our work um, is to focus on subjects of national importance, particularly in relationship to public policy. And of course, there's none more important at the present time than Brexit and the future of our relationship to the European Union. And we're delighted this evening to be able to welcome to the university and to speak to us uh, in particular about British foreign policy after Brexit, but I'm sure they'll range across a number of other areas, and we can certainly do so in questions, to, to welcome Lord David Owen here to the university. Uh, Lord Owen is, um, <clears throat> as people will know, was a, a foreign secretary in the 1974-79 uh, Labour government. He's one of the founding four of the uh, SPD. Um, he currently sits in the House of Lords as an independent social democrat. Uh, and he served in the early 90s as the EU peace negotiator in the former Yugoslavia. So he has incredible range of experience and um, uh, networks and ideas to bring to bear on the subject of how Britain uh, relates to the European Union. In 2012, he published a book on the Eurozone crisis and Europe restructured, but he's recently published a book entitled British Foreign Policy After Brexit. So we're delighted, Lord Owen, to be able to welcome you here to the university this evening. Lord Owen. Thank you very much for having me, and it's nice to be back in almost Bath on the hill. Uh, I remember well the 87 election with Malcolm Dean, who was the SPD candidate, and I thought the SDP might win it, actually, but we didn't, but he did pretty well. Then the Liberals won it and held it as Liberal Democrats, and uh, very successfully, but for a short intervention, which I see is now being corrected. Um, <laughs> I, I've spoken on Europe in this city. I've spoken on defence when I, we, people tend to forget your naval connection with the construction and uh, design workers very close to Bath. And I'm well aware that uh, there's a good deal of interest in this because uh, for a lot of you, uh, very strong Europeans, it's not been easy uh, to live with and let alone accept uh, the referendum decision, and I understand that. Uh, up until the Maastricht Treaty, I wouldn't have dreamt of being anything other than a strong European, which I was from 1962 onwards. But I was a Gatesgalite uh, supporter. My view of Europe was always determined by one feature, which was the warning that... Uh, Hugh Gaitskill gave to the Labour Party and indeed to the country in 1962. A common market's all right, but uh, have you realised, having, he was a serious man, having spent time with Monet, Gaspari, and also with Spark, that the founding fathers want one thing, which is the United States of Europe. They are federalists, and he explained why he was not a federalist. He did not want to be a uh, UK as a state equivalent to Florida or California in the United States of America. And that has always been my limitation. And indeed, it was one of my strong uh, differences with the Liberal Party, going back to Joe Grimmond, were for the most part enthusiastic Federalists of its uh, committee people. And I will understand federalism, and uh, 
I have to tell you, I was a minority of one in my own family on the referendum issue, so, uh, and I would say to my, they're no longer children, but I would say to them, bear this in mind. And then, broadly speaking, they were prepared to be in uh, Federalist Europe. Well, that's fine. But from Maastricht onwards, I found it intellectually very difficult to justify. I hoped that the British opt-out of the Eurozone would be sufficient, but it was pretty clear soon that it was not. Now, there's so many things to talk about, and in an audience like this, I believe in participation, so there will be ample time for questions, and uh, I'm no holds barred, go wherever you like. I um, should explain this book. Um, this was written with David Ludlow, who was a diplomat at the time, and my private secretary during the Balkans. And uh, he's 25 years younger than me, and he voted Remain. So I have long since ceased to not really want to spend too much time arguing about the argument of whether it's Remain or Leave. Uh, now, you could say that's just because I happen to be on the winning side, but I don't really believe it. I, I actually do believe that when Parliament cedes its powers to the people, which is what you do in a referendum, and it's quite painful, as we're seeing hour by hour, day by day, for members of Parliament to live with that reality. And you only ever do it when your own party is split, and usually when Parliament itself is split. And remember, that was the background to the referendum decision, which was taken by the Labour Party. It was the reason that I and Roy Jenkins and some others, three of us, I think, four of us, George Johnson, Harold Lever, resigned from being official spokesman for the party in 1972. And um, I personally wanted a referendum, actually, even at that stage. But I was fighting a marginal seat, and I wanted to solve the problems inside the Labour Party, which he did, really, the 75 referendum. But I had no doubt that when Wilson and Callaghan both said in the 75 election that if the vote is to go out, then we will stay in post and take you out. I was quite shattered, I must say, at 7 o'clock in the morning to discover Cameron walking out on us, having told us all that he was going to stay and take it. And I thought there would be a very real risk of a run on Sterling, which actually there wasn't. But overall, I mean, Sterling weakened, of course, but not just from Brexit, actually. I think there were other reasons why Sterling should have weakened. But overall, I just do accept it. Uh, I understand people who just can't live with it, and I, I, I will urge you to do so, but uh, we're a free world and a proper democracy, and we've got to be tolerant of uh, divisions of opinion. But I don't think members of parliament have that same freedom. Uh, if they have voted against a referendum bill and the legislation and the involvement of the Electoral Commission, that's a different question. But if they allowed the referendum to go through, an offer will never have taken place unless Parliament voted for it. It didn't just have to be in the Tory party manifesto. Um, I, I think myself they are obliged to listen to the voice. So we decided to lift sights and to deal with the issue in front of us, and that is what we would do when we are, and we are already in many relationships in foreign policy, already beginning to feel that we're freer and more moving towards our own situation. And although I was Foreign Secretary when we were in the European community, at that stage we had no real foreign policy. There was none of the um, 
arrangements that have been made for uh, pulling the 27 countries together in a foreign policy and having a, a commission, a vice president of the commission responsible for foreign affairs. So I was, if you like, in a way, one of the last foreign secretaries to live in a period in which we were responsible for our own foreign policy. So I have no difficulty with that going back. But coming back to David Ludlow, we don't discuss, therefore, the, uh, the mechanisms for getting out. It's dealt with in my book here, uh, our book. There's one bit which is just written by me, and that's the uh, introduction. And I make it clear that I believe, and this was written in, uh, when it was still not quite clear how we would come out, that we should use the organization of the European economic area, which I'm sure will be familiar to quite a lot of you. And in the formal part of my speech, which is, I'm not going to read out, you'll be glad to hear, because uh, it's highly detailed stuff about the negotiating structure. I come out very clearly, and I'll just cut with this, for what I would like to do. But even in this introductory chapter, I do say we should use the EEA. And then I go to things. So let me deal with this just issue now. The here and now, and it's very current. Uh, the first agreed withdrawal document was produced on the 10th of uh, December, UK-EU joint document, which predominantly dealt with Northern Ireland, but not completely. And uh, that stood on its own for eight days, uh, or was it five days? Yeah, it was on the 8th, not the 10th. It was on the 8th, and on the 15th, the European Council produced their idea of what to do with the transition. So we were through the Irish problem, uh, not completely, it'll come back and be quite difficult, but there was enough for them to want to go forward, and we were going to go to the next phase. That first document, I really, I was surprised and enthusiastic about. I gather you've had uh, John Kerr explaining about Article 50, which he wrote. Now, I do remember, I'm sure he told you, it was designed never to be used. Uh, I have to tell you, if I'd been Prime Minister, it would never have been used. I would have come out under the terms of the Vienna Convention, which allows a dispute procedure, which is an arbitrational procedure, for leaving international treaties. And I think it would have been a great deal better than Article 50, because it was designed to actually be used. Article 50, because it's designed not to be used, is causing great problems. And one of it is that it has an inbuilt cliff edge. I believe you should not undertake any international negotiations unless you've got another place to go. And therefore, I have been pulling and pushing and trying to persuade people that you should have, as the end of a failure to agree, an agreed position where Britain would go. Now, here you have a problem. I am not a long-standing Brexiteer. I only made up my mind finally when I read the document that uh, Cameron brought back from the uh, negotiations, and I considered it was not satisfactory, and it was a, a unique opportunity once in a lifetime, for my, certainly for me, uh, to make a choice. I may say I went back to my constituency, even though I've been only the MP for 26 years, which is more than just by a few months than um, Nancy Astor, and I soon discovered that they were going to be out, you know, just spending an afternoon on our park bench talking to people and then a meeting. So Plymouth voted 60-40 out. I, 
I'm, I'm rather pleased I'm on the side of my constituents. I've always thought that's... Now, I know that's um, often called um, by another name these days. Um, uh, to follow, to listen, to respond to the views of your constituents um, is in danger of being disparaged. In my view, you better not go into politics if you're not ready to do that. Politics is about listening and compromising with your own views because politics is collective action. That is what we, we can have an adversarial system in the House of Commons, but only if we do have within it a readiness to compromise within political parties. Referendums are alien to our structures. You only use them where, as I said before, there's a conflict. Anyhow, coming back to the present, that document was good. It actually used the word negotiation twice. Because actually, this is not a negotiation. The 27 put the framework down, and you were asked to say yes or no. And this is an international treaty. And you negotiate in an international treaty for uh, one document, yes or no. And there seems to be a big misunderstanding about people in this. And now I believe that Parliament can amend it. But if the House of Commons is elected, is the European Parliament going to amend it as well? And is then individual parliaments going to amend it? International treaties have been governed by procedures over a long period of time, going back to the Ponsonby rules. They've been changed, those Ponsonby. And funnily enough, actually changed very recently. So we come back to this question of what we know is the next step. But this document was sensible. It did make arrangements. If you read the Irish section, it says if we fail to agree, this is what we would do, this is what we would do, and it's things. So that is a precedent for producing what we fail to agree in the next document, and I believe it should be, basically, that for the period of the transition, and only for the period of the transition, Britain would be member of the EEA, which we are now. I personally believe the legal position is very unclear. I think we have a very sound legal argument that we should continue members of the EEA, even if we leave the EU. And remember, the EEA membership is composed of three countries which are non-EU countries. That's Norway, uh, Iceland, and Liechtenstein. And I think it does provide a model for us for the transition. But I do not think it's sufficient to be only in that. Now, there are some people who may be in this room and quite well represented in the Liberal Party and in some of the parts of the Labour Party that would be content to Leave it at that. You just stay permanently in the EEA. Well, anyhow, EEA you get out of just by simply telling them the government gives a year's notice. The EEA is not governed by the ECJ. It's governed by the EFTA court. The ECJ would allow you to go on with your fishing and agricultural policies. It's got a lot more flexibility. Now, the problem is that the long-time Brexiteers, with perfectly good understanding wanting to come out of Maastricht Treaty and all its works and ready to come out of the European Union as well, could see that the place where the compromise position would be would be to go and be EEA members. So from 1990 onwards, a lot of these people, in good faith and perfectly reasonably, argued against that, if you like, midway position. And actually, I used to say, I'm in favor of that. I agree with them. I don't want it to be. But for a transition period, I think it's very different. So what I've argued today and pushed out to the papers, and there is a text, and any of you who are detailed men and women who want to see the things, there are about 12 copies here of the actual text, which Amy in the front, third from left, 
we would be very happy to distribute you. But it will be on websites, this website. It will be on my own website, and it will be on other websites. That's the detail. I don't want to go into it too much. But when the European Council produced the plan of what we would do, having come out of the European uh, Union in March 19, 2000, I get my 19s and my 2000s, I'm wistful thinking, going backwards, 2019, when we come out, they want us to sign up to what's called the vassal clause in this document, the vassal state clause. You go under the EU for everything with no participation at all. You're not even there in the European Parliament. You're not there in the European Council. You take it all as read. Now, that's not acceptable. I can't believe it's acceptable to anybody. The principle of having a second stage of transition in which... Uh, the Prime Minister calls implementation, as others call it transition. I, as far as I'm concerned, the more implementation it is possible. But they're saying to us, if you want two years to transition, get your uh, businesses and everybody ready to trading in a different way under WTO, and most importantly, get a free trade area, we want you in that period to be a complete status quo. I can accept the status quo, but I want the procedures for the status quo. And I don't think the governments have yet faced up to how you actually legislate for this. You're out of the European Union. Do you find a declaration, we, we, we hereby swear to accept all aspects of all treaties, which is what that sounds like in that clause. I don't believe that. But if you went into the EEA, you would then be able to deal with this issue, in my view, in a better way. But I don't expect to be listened to, but it might be forced on the government. Uh, now, the reason for doing it is this. That structure would not put you under the ECJ. That structure would be putting you inside the tent during that two-year period, though in a different structure. You would be consulted on documents. You would have to undertake within it that, for example, we wouldn't exercise our freedom as a contracting party to the EEA to deal with fishing and agriculture, which are outside it, we would not be able to make permanent changes. And we would hold back, probably, on we could start negotiating uh, treaties, but uh, trade treaties, but we wouldn't probably be able to implement them unless they found them perfectly unsatisfactory, uh, perhaps like with Norway or Iceland, I don't know. But we would have to accept the principle of status quo during that two years. Nobody takes advantage of each other, but we use a different mechanism and we use this machinery. And some people say, including the uh, Secretary of State for Brexit, that you can't do this. That if you sign up the EEA, it's absolutely fixed, you have to. Well, there's a procedure of protocols in the EEA where adjustments are made for single countries, uh, 49 of them in existence already. And it's an absolutely established procedure. Also, in the EEA, you do pay, uh, if you like, a, a bill to the European Union for being in it. It's largely directed to the poorer countries in the EU. It's not a very large sum of money, but it's a significant sum of money. Now, on top of that, they say, which again, I perfectly understand, if you have the benefits of being in the EU for two years, although you say you're outside, 
you must pay more into the budget. And this time they're talking big money. Now, that, again, I perfectly understand. But there's a trade-off, too. If you don't end up with an agreed trade arrangement, you shouldn't pay. And I, I don't think there's any logic why you should. So I'm not saying you're not paying anything. You are. You are paying what a normal EA member would do during that EU. But if you come out uh, with a trade agreement, then it's worth you putting in substantial amounts of money. Now, I don't say you shouldn't. You can negotiate on that. But in principle, you pay for what you get, which is a two-year pause and time for your industry to adjust and to adapt and time to get a free trade agreement. And frankly, if they don't want to give anything more than Canada, that's up to them. I personally think they'd be wise, and certainly on the table for the negotiation would have to be financial services, and you can deal with that. I also think on this, we should try to encourage a rather better dialogue on financial services than that between politicians. I mean, who of us really understand the intricacies of financial services unless you're employed by a big British bank or you're in a stockbroking company or you're in one of these great big American uh, government sats et al. Well, the people who understand it for us in this country for years and years has been the Bank of England. They deal with this. And increasingly for the rest of the European countries, the ECB. Let these two, the president of the ECB and the government of the Bank of England, in parallel with our discussions, have a dialogue about what is mutual interest. And remember this, a trade agreement is of mutual interest. It's not about paying you back for being or not being in the single market. And we ought to get that relationship right, of what's in the transition and what's in the end state. And I think if we put ourselves behind it, you could find a very considerable majority of people in this country who would back such approach, and that we could start to end some of the divisions between Remainers and Leavers, and the sooner the better. It is very, very difficult to send a foreign secretary out into an international treaty, in this case, the Brexit secretary, but increasingly it's been done by the Prime Minister, and I think that's logical, largely because of the very obvious differences which are in the company in the cabinet and they're in the country, so we shouldn't be too surprised about that. And if you do send them out there, the more there is unity behind and the less there is backbiting and maneuvering and trying to outdo each other, the better. Now, I'm a realist. It won't stop. But the idea that the House of Lords should be the member, that this bill that has come now through the House of Commons can be completely change on the principle of the referendum debate by the House of Lords is so ludicrous. I don't intend to participate very much in this. So they will no doubt play ping pong with the House of Lords and then things will go back and fro. But this is not a democratic principle. The House of Lords can turn around a bill that has gone through the House of Commons and particularly one that has been in the manifestos of three parties. The Labour Party is busy pretending at times that it wasn't, but it was in their uh, manifesto. It was in the uh, manifesto of the uh, Irish Party, the DPP, and it was also, of course, in the manifesto of the Conservative Party. Enough. I'll now deal with the future in more detail, but it is on the basis that we're out, and I think I've tried to provide here in much more detail a mechanism whereby you could come out and it could come out with some grace, honor, and actually in the interest of the EU as well. In, you set aside the legal argument as to whether or not you come out automatically when you leave the EU from the EEA 
that could be settled by lawyers. There's already a legal case, incidentally, which will come and trouble the government, I suspect, in the spring again. And who knows? The High Court actually can't act on it, no more than the ECJ. ECJ is not uh, an international court. It would actually end up, in my view, in Vienna. Now, on this question, I think we have to ask ourselves, what does this term global Britain mean, really? And I think we do have to accept, and I was in the Labour government and the Labour Party at the time, that the decision to come out east of Suez, in, made in dribs and drabs, but by 1968 was firm and definite policy, did change for all time the absolute assumption that we would operate globally, militarily, politically, economically, and trade. And we did make a decision to be more focused on Europe. And that was, had some logic to it, a European common market. Uh, and while it was entirely related to market and trade issues, it had some. Gradually, it became on this flavor that it was more than that. It was economic questions. And Britain was pushing for financial services to be involved in this has not really been involved very much. There is a certain amount, but fairly minimalist. And then the great push was for foreign policy. Now, why was the great push for foreign policy? Because you can't be inside a grouping of nations for very long without you coming into the question of how do you cope with having a single voice. And particularly for Federalists, they wanted a single voice. Now, it would surprise you, and indeed, it has come up almost uh, unannounced because they come in little dribs and drabs and complicated arrangements, the extent to which we already have a machinery for European foreign policy. The, uh, the foreign ministers meet, all 27 of them, chaired not by one of their own, which used to happen with political cooperation when it started, which is the first inklings of a movement on foreign policy in the late 70s, and I operated that for a couple of... This was minuscule. To now having a situation where we were always told the Commission had nothing to do with foreign policy. We now have a deputy uh, to the President of the Commission, at present is an Italian lady, previously it was a British lady, who for the term of the Commission operates as a European foreign minister. We were told that they would not be embassies, they would be um, commission uh, offices and uh, missions, and they are now called everywhere around the world, European embassies. We were told they wouldn't be uh, ambassadors, they would be, have, now, you, you, you start off on this route. And slowly, remorselessly, and with increasing pace, after the European Constitution uh, was defeated in uh, 2004 by, wait for it, France and Holland, the two countries that are founding six and at this stage the keenest on foreign policy, their governments were disowned by their own people. We would promise them uh, a, a referendum in this country. Uh, by Tony Blair before the 2005 election, it was withdrawn afterwards, and then we had the Treaty of Lisbon. Now, all this time, the machinery was moving more and more towards the federal Europe. And I think that it's best to be upfront about that. I don't like it. I don't think it's possible. 
NATO is the answer for us. And people say, well, that works. And you think it's a strong and good organization? I do. But foreign policy is different to defense policy, and it's particularly different to a defense organization in which the dominant partner is the United States. And I don't personally think NATO can operate on a voting system. I think it has to operate on consensus, but a consensus which recognizes power structures. And basically, decisions are taken in the NATO if the United States agrees with them, and certainly if France and Britain agree. If those three countries, that, is, that carries the day, probably. And Germany now. So I should have added Germany. Germany's, Germany, which France always thought France would look after German foreign policy. That's all changed now. Germany looks after its own foreign policy and its own economic policy, and rightly so. But the, that's the weighting that is in it. So the two organizations are very different, uh, but they are, you give a little sovereignty, great deal more at present for the, United, for the European Union, and if it goes to be a federal union, of course, almost 100%. And you give less sovereignty, uh, but important sovereignty. Why are the Americans prepared to do it? Because they have American supreme allied command in Europe. And the Congress can say that unlike the great argument about Woodrow Wilson and why he lost on the League of Nations and they never became a signature, is because they're all serving under an American commander, this doesn't raise the questions that were raised by the Woodrow Wilson debate. NATO is a very subtle organization. I love a piece I found of Ernest Bevin, and it was 1947, and the, he was drafting this document, and the Foreign Office diplomats came in and said, you know, you should weaken this a bit strong. He said, I don't want it a bit strong. I want a mechanism which America can feel confident in. I want a decision-making structure which they will be happy to be in. And if that constricts our freedom, so be it. So it was a practical, pragmatic document, NATO's, and it's lasted us extremely well. So I start with this. I don't think it's possible to go on very much longer with first Obama and now President Trump telling the American people that we in Europe are freeloading on NATO and on them, and they are paying 70 to 74%, people argue the percentage figures of NATO's budget. That is intolerable. And now when we see President Trump actually in office rather than in, in, on the stump, it is very clear that though that has not yet happened, fortunately, and he has pull back from that rhetoric about uh, NATO and being fully supportive, there is out there in America, as there has always been, an isolationist element. It was there very strongly in 39 and in 40 and in 41. And uh, it was not until Pearl Harbor that they came in. Even when Woodrow Wilson made the first decision to come in in the First World War, it was only a year and a half before troops in any substantial numbers came over. This isolationist theory is there. The success of NATO is it has bridged it. And we now, I don't believe, can have a foreign policy until we lift from the debate in this country defense from announced defense cuts. You aren't going to carry much conviction in the capitals of the world talking about a global Britain if they see in their newspapers back home cuts like no longer any amphibious capability, no longer able to buy those kinds of planes, seeing the Americans very upset if we make some of the cuts in the army which have been currently obliged. We face a problem. 
The strength of the uh, Russian Federation is nowhere near as strong as the USSR. We are not back into that type of Cold War, which was ideological as well, uh, was an ideological battle between democracy and state intervention in every aspect of your life. That was what Soviet communism was about. It's a very difficult one. But Russian Federation is large. They have a tradition of large armies, and they were very poorly equipped, and for 10 years have been allowed to lapse. They have been greatly strengthened now, so much so that in private, American generals will tell you that they are worried about being able to hold an attack from the Russian Federation in the central front of NATO. And, I, you know, the logic in it is you can't, it's very hard to argue against it. I noticed in today's papers, Sweden, neutral Sweden, is now getting very concerned about what's happening in this area. Now, I don't think they're going to come rampaging in to take Frankfurt or uh, anyone else. But we have rightly put troops into the Baltic states. We have rightly put troops into Estonia in particular. And it's a, it's a very um, potentially, I won't use the word dangerous, but potentially um, tough assignment. This is not something in which you can say that, oh, they're there, but you know, just exercising. They could be tested, and we've got to be frank about that. I don't believe that we can make some of these cuts in the army. And what's more, the Americans will dislike it intensely. If you want to preserve NATO, and it's a defensive organization, not an offensive organization, then we've got to be prepared to find that money as part of a global foreign policy. I've never believed that defense is in one separate box in France. It's a very good tradition that the foreign secretary is always senior in cabinet to the defense secretary. Now we've got a new machinery that governs us over foreign policy. It's tough reading, uh, that particular chapter, because I read a good deal of it, because I had to go back and discover what was in this National Security Committee that has been established by David Cameron. And first of all, we need to look at its record from 2010 to the present day. Not a particularly happy one, I may say. Unfortunately, Libya looms large as another mistake, not quite as bad as Iran Iraq, but pretty bad. And we've also got the whole failures of Syria, although I don't put the National Security Committee and British decisions as core or central to that. But you need to understand it. In concept, it's a good one. And I'm not we wrote this book, both of us, in a belief that it should last the National Security Commission. It should not fail. And these are meant to be constructive criticisms, but also to explain how it works. Just briefly, what it happens is, firstly, it involves, as the Defense Committee always used to do, the Chief of the Defense Staff and the key political ministers. But it, this also involves the head of MI6, spying overseas, head of MI5, more than the police and spying in Turkey and watching us back here in this country, and the head of um, GCHQ, which basically means cyber. And cyber is now undoubtedly one of the weapons of a, the sort of wars we face. Now, I think this is a very good thing. One time I was made chairman of the Non-Proliferation Committee by uh, Jim Callahan, and we came back from Washington aware that President Carter was really keen on this issue. I chaired that committee, and I don't know, maybe in Jim, or I don't know, but anyhow, Herman Bondi, who professor, who was the science advisor to the Ministry of Defense, 
with civil servants came on this committee. You change a grouping of politicians with civil servants uh, and scientists and others, it just changes, and they become better committees. They're more interested in facts and less interested in opinion polls, and they basically become a dip, slightly different and a better animal. So I, I like the idea. And then it's got a concept of the DFID, our overseas aid is there. And it really is ridiculous, you know, the way we currently run DFID. They are bound to be, and rightly so, first focused on poverty and the really poor countries and programs which are definitely devoted to that. A lot of other countries tie their aid, you know. Sweden ties its aid budget. A lot of people do. That's been verboten. That's a SPC issue. You're not allowed to discuss that. That is now open for discussion. But more important, and of relevance to defense, is we are focusing on insecurity in poor countries, and quite rightly so. And we are having to put in what are no, nothing more or less than military missions into some of these countries for that stability. That is not a reasonable cost on the defense budget. It's governed by OECD rules. We have a, an absurd resolution. I, don't, I know a lot of people are very proud of it which compels us to pay 0.7% of defense. Why I'm against it is if you have that sort of thing coming towards the end of the month and you haven't spent it all, you shunnel out this stuff into areas which you haven't had time to scrutinize, and then you get daily mail headlines of the appalling problems of aid budget, which then makes aid become more, and more unpopular amongst some section of the population. Having got to be one of the most giving countries on poverty and overseas aid of any in the world, we need to make sure it's successful. And if you don't spend it all one year, the Treasury would have to give up their rules and you'd have to be able to transfer it over, but they won't. Anyhow, that needs a whole area looked at as well. So within that framework, tying all these ministries together, and Chancellor Exchequer being there and the Home Office on ISAN, the greatest danger of this is what happened to foreign policy in 2001. In 2001, we moved from a normal British model that we'd served us pretty well in two Cold Wars to a situation where defense and foreign policy was made by the Prime Minister in Number 10. And whatever arguments about Tony Blair's policies on Iraq, I happen to believe it was perfectly right to take some action against Saddam Hussein. I don't believe even, although it was pretty borderline, I don't think it was actually technically illegal uh, because nobody took us to the Security Council to challenge our interpretation of an age-old, i.e. nine-year-old, Security Council resolution. But the thing that did us in was the absence of serious discussion amongst this sort of grouping of people that I'm talking about, the National Security Council, and decisions were taken inside number 10. And to deal with it, there were two very serious and, and, and effective diplomats uh, Stephen Wall, who worked for me and dealt with Europe, and David Manning, who dealt with foreign policy or military matters and the United States. If this NSC becomes the creature of the Prime Minister again, it will be every bit as bad. And you will find it the independence of the head of MI6 to speak his mind in that committee will start to change. So the MSC, NSC should make decisions by unanimity. If the Prime Minister disagrees and wants to take it back to Cabinet, that's fine. Cabinet will always eventually be supreme. 
Now, in that structure, a few other points that I want to make, and come back again to defense. Now, we have two shocking great aircraft carriers. God knows why anybody built them. Uh, I mean, I fought for HMS Invincible and HMS Illustrious as chairman of the Admiralty Board from 1968 to 1970, and thank God in the Falkland Islands we had them. These are minute in comparison to these two aircraft carriers. How we got them, whether you like it or not, and the question is, you could scrap it, but that would be, again, a completely devastating admission that we uh, played out. There is a role for those aircraft carriers now. I was on the um, conflict commission of, uh, created by the Carnegie, and many people with lifetime knowledge of and work for the UN, and we came to one absolutely unanimous we have got to have, while we're explaining that there won't be UN troops in the sense answerable to UN, they will always come from member state nations, there has to be a way of rapidly mobilizing, whether on land, sea or air, a capacity to stop conflict. And if we haven't learned that after uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, Rwanda, and all the other things that are happening around the world. They won't be able to take on your major battles, your Syrias, but they are a hugely important tool. And to have a maritime one of those would be effective. To keep uh, one uh, aircraft carrier on station, you have to have a minimum of two, and it's better to have three. I hope in this uh, conversations at Sanders with President Macron, Prime Minister uh, May, that they started to talk about whether the French want to put their aircraft carrier into the pool and would give us a little bit more flexibility. The French openly admitted the other day they don't have any amphibiously trained commandos and ready to be on boats, and they suggested we should cooperate on that. And I'm very much in favor of not only having most of our effort going through NATO, I'm ready to do uh, bilateral cooperation with France, and I applaud the decision to put troops out into Chad and into North Africa, and they're going to be more and more necessary for any form of serious immigration policy. So these are ways that are going. Now, it also, there are some wars that would have been very helpful. Actually, it would have been very helpful in Libya if we'd had an aircraft carrier off station. And not, we were flying planes and refueling them in the air and then bringing them back to England or going into Cyprus. And I think that that would add an extra dimension to UN peacekeeping, which I would love. We wouldn't be solely on that, but I, I, don't, I wouldn't like to take one of those aircraft carriers into the Baltic Sea, for instance. Uh, the Russians would make mincemeat of it very, very quickly. And uh, it is, it's sophisticated, but it can't take American most sophisticated aircraft because we didn't, weren't prepared to pay for the uh, pistons that send them off and the traps that stop them when they arrive on the aircraft carrier, which was, again, a rather crazy decision taken by the coalition, admittedly in the circumstances of a fairly dire financial situation in 2010. So you have to look at all these sort of things. And I've delayed a little too long on defense. What can we do to help the economy of the country? Well, the other day when Japan was being overflown by North Korean missiles, a grotesquely provocative action, we wisely sent ministers to Prime Minister Wint and Minister of Defense, Foreign Secretary, went to Japan. But it had that aircraft carrier, that's now the one that will be first on station, hopefully next year, I would have sent it straight to Tokyo. It would have made all the difference. Now, this is not sending gumbos to deal with activity. 
But if you are pledging you're going to be helpful to them, particularly since Japan is at present a non-nuclear state, the more signs that you are backing up your rhetoric with a serious military look at what you can do. We can't do anything by ourselves. We would, in those circumstances, operate in cooperation with the United States and with Australia and with New Zealand. And again, when I'm asked about all these things, about you know, the Commonwealth is played out and everything like that, the most significant intelligence arrangement in the world is that between the United States, Canada, UK, France, and New Zealand, three of them Commonwealth countries. That is the most prized, very carefully guarded, uh, secrets gathering and assessment and analysis organization. And we should be pleased with it, and we have to go on spending money because it's all the time stretched. Now, I notice I've not given a figure on what the defense budget is, and in other forms and venues, I might be in a hospital, and I would be, I'm certain, convincing them that we have to spend more on the National Health Service, and I challenge anybody to want to do that more than I do. So I, I'm also, I'm afraid, I don't even go as high as 3%. I believe we must increase our defense budget from 2 to 2.5%. 0.5% is significant. It will be seen as significant in Washington. It will be seen as significant, actually, even in Moscow. I think it will be seen as important in terms of European relations. So when people say to me, well, if we come out of the foreign policy decision, where do we go? We have got two very good international organizations which you go to straight away. One will be NATO, and that will be mainly orientated towards Europe, though you know, we used to talk about NATO as um, going out of station, out of all, out of, out of, out of range issues. And we broke that. And so now we go to Afghanistan, we go to Iraq, NATO, and NATO is more or less deployable worldwide. And why is it important? Because it's got a unified command and control center. And you cannot send troops out there when you have headquarters battling, battling, or national egos battling for what the servicemen actually do. They need to know they've got a command structure, and it ends in the Supreme Allied Command of Europe. And that has worked well for us, and we should carry that out. It's very precious, in my view. I think an extra 5% on defense would be helpful. Government said they'll carry on with inflation-proofing it, I think there's money to be taken from the pooled NSC budget, but I suspect some more will have to come from us taxpayers. And I think you've got to want to do it, and you've got to be prepared to do it. Now, what about commercially? I'm going to cheat now. Well, why not? I saw it in the car coming down. Sir James Dyson, I think you know about him in this part of the world. Europe's only 15% of the global market and the really fast expanding markets are in the Far East. I'm enormously optimistic because looking outwards to the rest of the world is very, very important because that's the fastest growing bit. I could not possibly put it as well or as clearly or as concisely. And here is somebody who is selling products designed only a few miles away in world markets, manufactured part in this country, part in Singapore, part in other places. We have got to be there, and we are already there. This is what people in the European debate in this country have lost sight of. There has been a significant shift over the last 20 years from the percentage that we spent and sold into Europe and traded in Europe and this percentage. We have been expanding it. It went down from abroad, from the world as a whole, 
and focused mainly on Europe and was helpful to us. But now our biggest thing is to slightly increase that rate. It was going 10% uh, over 15 years, some say 20. If we did 5% over the next six, seven years, that would be extremely good. It means reorientating your sales force, your attitudes, your work. But if you talk to a lot of people in British industry, they believe we can do it. The question is, and it's a very important one, is can we do it also in financial services, in insurance, and everywhere? I believe we can. But, you know, then there comes to be this argument. Can we lift our sights without being jingoistic, without thinking that we're fighting the Second World War alone in 1940? Uh, can we get back a spirit of endeavor, what they used to call in Bristol, merchant adventurers? You know, the West Country is not uh, outside this whole thing. Some of you may go to Liverpool. You'll see a very small docks in comparison to what they used to be. More goods go out from the container profits of Liverpool than used to go out in the good old days. It's quite extraordinary how things have changed. Containerization has made huge difference. We're just building now. These, I mean, the Qataris are uh, a really new, very, very modern uh, container port, which will, in many ways, outdo Rotterdam. So we're not without facilities. We still, unfortunately, have got a strange view that the only way to go to France is through Calais. I've been trying to persuade people to use the Santander ferry at Brittany from Plymouth for years and years. I'm glad to say more and more people do use it. But a, nation, a maritime nation should never get itself locked into one major big port. And we need to be very careful about any more expansion in Dover. There's many other ports that we should expand from, just common prudence. Now, I hope I'm giving you a bit more of an idea of what sort of foreign policy we would have. Now, I'm not going to tell you that every single thing that's been done in Europe over foreign policy has been bad and should continue. Take Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, I spent nearly three years of my life in hard labor. It wasn't exactly a prison, but it was pretty bloody unattractive, I can tell you that. And we didn't solve the problem, and nor did the Dayton Accords and the intervention of the American diplomat, who was extremely successful in getting the war stopped. We, there are a lot of problems in that country, and there are problems you may have seen in the newspapers in Kosovo only just now, a prominent politician shot down in the streets. And there are a lot of tensions. There are a lot of dry wood, actually, all over Europe. People tend to forget the Ukraine. 10,000 people killed. Could have been 50, could have been 100,000. And here I'm very critical of EU foreign policy. The EU-Ukraine agreement which was meant to be about trade and economy, turned out to be most explosive for what it said about defense. And it gave a whole range of language which would be appropriate in a NATO-Ukraine agreement was totally inappropriate. I don't say that justifies the taking, uh, annexing of Crimea or the battle in East Ukraine, but it, it was undoubtedly something of a trigger. And we have to be more careful. That document should never have crossed the desk of the British Foreign Secretary without being rewritten, and nor the Germans. The Germans actually admitted to me that they had missed this, the inflammatory nature of this document. Now, out of that comes this other thing. Well, why don't we do all our defense on Europe? Well, you know, Germany. Where's Germany on 2% for NATO? Where's France on 2% for NATO? Where would we be without the American forces at this very moment? Hugely dangerous and damaging position. 
we've got to wake up to the reality that we took a peace dividend too quickly. No sooner was the Berlin Wall down than we were reducing our armed forces, we were reducing our capacity to influence, and unfortunately, despite a good phase at one stage with um, Gorbachev and with um, Yeltsin, relations with Russia have deteriorated quite dangerously. Now, here I just say to you, I'm sure you all think of me as a politician. I like to think of myself as a doctor. They can be as rude as you like to me about my political views, but I take great umbrage if anybody criticizes my medical knowledge, albeit for a fairly short time. Now, as a neurologist, too, I've written a huge amount about how the brain works in governance. But the fundamental thing, when we look at this question now, is how do we infuse the capacity of this country to earn its living in the markets of the world. Now, I'm going to talk about a politician which is, some may surprise you. But when the SCP was formed, we were very, very keen that we were not just a mirror image of either the Conservative Party or the Labour Party, not for doctrinal reasons, but because we thought, at least certainly I thought, that the mixed economy that we talked about in the past was insufficient and we had to talk about a social market and we had to try to define that which was social where commercial interests were not going to be predominant and that which was market which was increasingly world and market and international and you have to do that if you are going to compete internationally your price has to be competitive your design has to be competitive and your delivery dates have got to be competitive now if we're going to go out into that world and there are elements of protectionism in Europe. Initially, we might have some hiccups and difficulties, and it does mean reorientating, but we have to do it. We did do it, start to do it with resolve in the 80s, and the freeing of the city was a very considerable part of the city of London becoming such a very big... But it also contained with it a belief that markets could solve everything, and we've been seeing that now with the PFI collapse. There are domestic political arguments underneath things. And I am still, will tell you, I was extremely pleased as a member of the campaign committee of the uh, referendum uh, leave to see all these Tories commit themselves to increase spending on the National Health Service. And I'm intending to hold them to it when we eventually come out and don't have to spend even larger sums of money on Europe. So this cannot be looked at in isolation from domestic politics. It can't. It's not possible to ask Liberal Democrats or Conservative MPs, uh, no, sorry, Labour MPs or Scottish Nationalists to use this issue for politics. Politics invades everything. But every now and then you have issues of such a magnitude that you do set politics, not completely back. Churchill, even in 1940 and 41, insisted that there should be an opposition in the House of Commons, led largely by an Aaron Bevan. And there were about 40 to 50 Labour MPs who consistently voted against the government during the war. And very good thing too. And I think we've got to remember that there's a place for politics and partisan party politics. And there's a place for a national endeavour. We do have a national endeavour on our scale now. And we've got to be successful. So let's hope that in the next few weeks and months we can start to think more and more about how we make a Brexit successful. And it will mean orientating ourselves more to world markets 
than European markets. But don't, and I don't, uh, I understand when people point out the amount that we currently do through the European market. And everybody country always trades better with people who are closest to them. You'll cut your costs with Rome. Though after what settled in Cali, I'm, well, settled actually today in, um, um, with, um, with President Macron and with um, our Prime Minister May. It seems to be we're going to start paying for infrastructure. I hope she's very firm about that, but 49 million is quite a lot. Anyhow, we do gain from that bilateral agreement with France, and they gain. And the best agreements are ones in which there is mutual advantage. That's why don't be afraid of trade agreements. They are overtly about it. The best withdrawal agreement that we can get will be one in which we can reach agreement amongst our own states. And now I'd like to just answer questions from anyone in the hall. Thank you very much indeed, um, Lord Owen, for a very, very comprehensive set of remarks and um, informed greatly by our history too. You're in the sort of lion's den here a little bit, as you said at the beginning, this was a Remain voting city. You're in a university in a Remain voting city, so doubly sort of, if you like, pro-European. And I, suppose, I want to start the questions, if I may, by just asking you something about the politics of the, of the year ahead, because there are those people, and you referred to them when you, when you talked about opposition, opposition in the House of Lords to the withdrawal bill, who argue that Brexit can be reversed, that there will be a second referendum, or there could be a second referendum, and that this government will not be able to secure agreement in the Cabinet, um, let alone in the Parliamentary Party, to uh, a deal with the European Union. It's not agreed on the end state, if you like. It can agree on a, on a, on a withdrawal terms and a transition, but not on the end state. But what are the prospects of this government collapsing this year and there being a reopening of the Brexit question? Well, I don't think it's very likely. I mean, it's not negligible. You can't ever rule out these things. But uh, the House of Commons will not take much notice of a motion from Adonis or others or John Kerr or Co., uh, which no doubt they can get. They'll send it up and it will be sent back. And at that stage, you, they call it ping pong, which is a very good name for it because it's game playing. That's what it's about. So on, on the substantive thing of destroying this current bill, which is vital before you, you can't possibly do get out until you've got your own legislation for your own decision-making structures, which you have passed over to Brussels back here in the UK. So that bill, in my view, will have to get through. If it were not to get through, uh, they could, if they wished, take a general election. But I think that... Um, they would find other ways around it. But I, don't, I think that bill will get through. I don't think the Lords has got any uh, justification whatever. Uh, this is an intolerable organisation. You can't really call it a democratic basis. Uh, it's packed out with people who have paid money to political parties or are old uh, MPs who have been squared and people you know, who can always see pound signs above their heads. I go there rather rarely. I practically never vote. I speak on international affairs from time to time. And um, I think it's very good as a revising chamber, as long as the revising chamber understands what you're doing. You're revising. You are not fundamentally changing it. So I think forget the Lords. 
it's not import, unimportant that the former Prime Minister Tony Blair and uh, John Major oppose it, but I think you have to ask what authority they had to take as many steps as they have taken over the years uh, towards Europe without ever admitting it. And I think that the Federalist, the Federalist leadership of, well, certainly Ted Heath, uh, certainly Michael Heseltine, and certainly Ken Clark, and uh, these are very overt in private Federalists. Mm. I think it would have been better if we'd had that debate a little bit more often. But I don't see myself this um, Conservative Party collapsing this year, second year, possible. They might even choose to hold an election. But remember, we have a five-year parliament as a result of the coalition, in my view, very sensible decision to have fixed-term parliaments. Mm -hmm. It is not as easy. In the old days, Harold Wilson believed that he only had to last for six months and then he had a, a dissolution in his pocket. You have to go to the Queen and ask for it. But he felt that she would be reluctant to allow an election just immediately. And I think he was probably, you know, it's not unwritten constitution, but that's broadly it. But now he knows the Prime Minister has a dissolution in their hip pocket. And it's, you have to, a vote of confidence has to be lost twice, which is unlikely. And to get it out, it has to be on a normal vote, it has to be three quarters. That's a huge majority. Was it um, two thirds? Two thirds or three quarters? Yes, two thirds. Anyhow, it's, 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 okay. it's very, very pushing the system to actually hold an election in 2021. Yeah. Okay, let's go to some questions then. So up the back there first and then, and then down here. Yeah. We'll try, and, we'll try and get a microphone to you quickly if we could because it's a bit hard to hear here. Yeah. Hello. I just wanted to pick up on your comment of uh, national endeavour and I wonder, given the divisions within all the constituent parties and the premise of our society, which is, you know, increasingly individualistic, how we can move towards any sort of national endeavour. Yes, yeah, so you're asking a very divided society to come together into a well, national project. I, I'm not sure we are quite as divided. I mean, you know, that is the virtue of a referendum, is that it, it had a bigger vote participation than any other vote, which is quite interesting. Perhaps we haven't been, uh, people think rather more people have been voting in the higher percentage figures that we've been undercounting. But it, if you look at the British uh, parliamentary structure, we are now in a multi-party situation. I used to be attacked for believing that there was no room for a fourth party in British politics, that we could only survive on three. Well, we've arguably got five or six at the moment. And you could well feel after a coalition which went the full five years, you know, uh, we will see more coalitions. I personally won't be totally upset about that either. But maybe that will start to breathe because there'll be different choices, because people will have voted more cross-party at different times for different parties. The old theme that you voted as your parents did is still there, but it's not as strong as it was. It's eroding. Once you've voted for more than one party, you've got yourself out of the, the, the rut of feeling you have to, this is, this is my party. And like, I'm not against party loyalty. I said politics is collective action. But for the last majority of people, they're not interested in politics. They only turn to it when an election comes. To get those sort of people feeling more open-minded to ideas, 
I think it's already happening. I don't think a Chancellor of the Exchequer will ever be able again to do what Osborne did in the referendum. I mean, these statistics, which there's a Financial Times Today article analysing how badly wrong the Bank of England did on estimating the effect of Brexit. So I'm not one to say no for experts. I think you do need experts. But you need overall judgment. And finally, a democracy depends on the judgment of each and every one of us. And I'll say this to you. I believe the British people have got the election result right ever since I was born in 1938. And that's twice got me removed from government. <laughs> okay, so question here, yeah. Um, thank you very much. Um, I, I quite agree with you on a lot of the points that you, that you talked about. Um, I think one thing, and it does link um, to the previous question with regards to your point of national endeavor. Um, if we look beyond um, the European Union with regards to trying to create a, a global Britain, um, not just with regards to military, but also economics, the key point kind of arises in terms of a, a bit of a, a tension. Is if we look um, beyond European Union, for instance, to, to Asia, to China, China has demonstrated a very keen interest in, in Britain in terms of its financial services, its insurance sector, trade, um, innovation, fintech, green tech, all that kind of stuff, where Britain is very strong. Um, and there's a lot of interest that China has with regards to engaging with Britain and learning from Britain. Um, and there's a lot of potential there with regards to a potential free trade agreement. You also raised the point of Japan and North Korea and the fact that you support the idea of sending military to Japan to support and protect Japan. This has an inherent tension for China. Um, it, so it, it places Britain on a different, different scale with regards to foreign policy than it has in recent decades. Um, that it's never played. And I wanted to know, is Britain, after Brexit, in a position to, to back up, can it afford to back up this rhetoric um, that, that we're talking about? Well, this book tries to be clear on those issues. So on those issues, we say that an aircraft carrier should not be lined up by Britain to sail with the Americans close to these islands that have been uh, claimed by China. Uh, that's gunboat diplomacy of a poor kind, where you're not only providing uh, a very small part of it, but it should be prepared to show confidence in a country like with Japan. Not, you're not engaging in a battle, you're showing you're behind them in a supportive way. I think that provocative action you have to be done with a very good cognizance of how strong you are. I also think that China is best dealt with on the issue of these land aircraft carriers that they're building all around the South China Seas through uh, the law of the sea, on which Britain has a great deal of expertise. Many diplomats work very hard on that, and some of them have been retired early. And we should contribute and help, particularly Australia and New Zealand, but other friends, Malaysia, Singapore, on the legal aspects of that. So I wouldn't get fluffed into it, because the navies will want you. The admirals will absolutely aching to do this. You should just say, no, we're not going to get in sucked into that. We're going to deal with that through diplomatic means, and we're not going to deal with it the shaving of military. We're not there for that purpose. 
We're there for a stand-on, standby call on the UN for security things to show friendship, to trade, to do joint exercise. Incidentally, an aircraft carrier needs to frigates and destroyers with them to accompany them to make, and you would have and hope to have uh, in appropriate parts Australia, uh, New Zealand. Uh, I would love to see India uh, accompanying them. So that's my answer to your question. As far as um, China is open to us, but let's not forget, Germany sells a great deal more to China than we do. We've got a lot of catching up to do. I read a very good article in the uh, one paper which analyzed a manufacturer of lights, you know, sophisticated lights, and they decided to go into China, although they were 90% in Europe, and they took the specifications, particularly in hotels, and they designed and produced, and they're now selling into very large hotel groups all the electric fittings in that hotel. That's a hell of a business. And it shows you what you can do. Okay, let's go. Yeah, David here, and then I'll come back. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you, Lord Owen. Uh, David Moon, par- uh, Department of Politics, Languages and International Studies. I have a copy of your 1978 book, Human Rights, here. Fantastic. Uh, lovely picture on the back as well. Um, there's a quote on page two, which I've always thought was quite remarkable, and I was wondering if I could just quickly read. It's just, just two sentences, and your, your sort of thoughts on it today. When I begin to speak out for human rights and argue that a concern of human rights should permeate our whole foreign policy, I warned there was a price to pay and that the price was a little inconsistency from time to time. If I had to make that comment again, I would no longer say a little inconsistency. I would say a very great deal of inconsistency. And then you you note that because the politician's compromise is very obvious, can be seen by everyone, can be dissected, editorialized upon, and scathingly attacked, there's been a tendency to elevate possibly to an unrealistic height the attraction of the man in public life who is the man of principle, the man of consistency, the man of unbending views. I think it's rather remarkable as Foreign Secretary you were able to write that. That's maybe a different time. But I was wondering, is that something you would still hold to today, that we need to recognize that inconsistency and the flexibility is actually, at a time of Brexit, something we should be openly talking about? Is that even possible? Well, I think we are pretty openly talking about it and have been for quite a while. Um, so I, I, I think it's a very narrow point to when you stop debate. And um, I, I don't want to go on about it, but I do think referendum is used so uniquely that you do it and you only take the liberty with an MP's right. We call it still an advisory referendum. It is still theoretically nothing I can do, can or should stop Kenneth Clark, who's held these views for years, uh, federalist views, voting his rights in the House of Commons, he, if he feels so strongly about it. But for others who are less sure, less committed, more committed perhaps to the referendum, he never was committed to it, then I think you do make those changes. You are a Remainer who decides, well, uh, I'll live with it. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to influence, and particularly within your own party. So I'm not asking for people to give up their views, but I do ask them to put the, the good of the whole sometimes before them. And I think that's extremely important. And uh, you know, it's, it's an agonizing Quakers find this difficulty when war is declared or other things. They found a way of 
supporting the war effort with you know, helping in stretcher parties and things like that. There are ways in politics where you can... You know, I, I wouldn't expect the Liberal Party to give up their commitment to Europe. and Maybe they want to fight another election. They did fight one election, this last one, on uh, uh, effectively going back into the EU. It, it really got them a more appalling result. I don't myself think there'll be a mood for that for quite some time, but people can do what they want. And on consistency... <laughs> I think a criticism of my own political career is actually I've been too consistent. I've not often changed my mind, and maybe I should have been loved all you liberals much more than I did. I actually perfectly understood why you wanted to be federalists. I perfectly understood why on a lot of policies where I disagreed, you were not going to be on balance. That's why I wanted to keep the SDP and ourselves and the liberals in harness rather than merge. But that's a past battle now. You've got a Liberal Democrats, and you've got a good injection of decent, serious SDP people working in there, and they don't know the difference, and that's all to the credit. But I have been shocked, I must say, that though the SNP did extremely well at one stage, and it still is a powerful force, the Liberal Party has not become a powerful force, and I would hope that they will look at their European policy uh, in a few years' time. Okay, let's have some more... Questions, yeah, so colleague here. Then. Actually, I'll take three if I may, David, just so we can get yeah. more people in. So colleague here at the front, and then Nick, starting to get there, buddy, and then come down here. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you, Lord Owen, and uh, good evening. Could I raise the topic of immigration? Because immigration is faced as a, as a challenge in many countries around the world, and it's a huge and difficult problem to deal with. Uh, I think if I understand the research correctly, it was a very strong motivator for many leaders, if not the overriding reason why we ended up with a referendum. And I'd just be very interested to hear your views on you know, what Britain should do about immigration, and in particular whether it is actually possible to deliver what I think leave voters were hoping for. Yeah. So sort of motivated. Okay, thank you. Um, Nick, uh, Nick started with get a mic to Nick. Um, you said that uh, you made your mind up at the moment when Cameron um, uh, came back with a deal that wasn't particularly uh, strong. Um, I'm just interested in what would have made you vote to stay in the European Union in terms of the negotiation deal. Um, and also, a second question was, um, you know, I agree with much of what you say around foreign policy, but somewhere along the lines... I don't think you're kind of acknowledging enough the soft power influence of the European Union um, for global good. Okay, thanks, Nick. And a colleague here, yeah. Yeah, I'll come down to the front of the audience for more. Yeah. Um, just a quick uh, comment and a question about the um, commerce and economy. Um, you mentioned uh, or quoted uh, very rightly so that there are big uh, emerging markets, um, mainly in Asia, as we know, uh, that the UK can look into and uh, expand to. Um, the facts are that, uh, well, one of those economies, as we know, is China, which uh, is indeed growing in terms of consumption and uh, the middle, uh, middle class is growing, but that is a part of the government's uh, um, strategy to uh, uh, find a market for their own uh, manufacturing, it is not easy 
to sell to China, except for uh, there are a limited number of niche industries or high-tech um, or design um, uh, areas where UK might be ahead of China, Mind, um, but of course they are catching up fast on those as well. Uh, the second um, uh, market is India. Um, Do you want to come to question, please? Yes, and uh, India, of course, the, the number of uh, that, the scale or the level of the uh, market is not something that the UK can enter into in large scale, at least at the moment. The middle class Indian, when they emerge, they are not going to buy um, Dyson hair dryers. So it is not an easy battle to win the other potential economies or, or markets. And uh, unfortunately, even it might, I mean, in this effort uh, to, to win the, 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 those uh, markets, it might even affect the foreign policy, as looks like it already is. Do you think it's a positive thing? Do you, do you admit it is happening? And do you think it's a so positive thing? So it's a question thing? sort of, you know, should, should we make our foreign policy subservient to trade policy, which yeah. is what the critique has been? Right, well... Um, well, that's fresh in memory, let's deal with that one first. I don't think it should be subservient, but the overall economic and position of a country that doesn't, has to import, can't, isn't self-sufficient, which in many ways America is the closest probably to being, requires you to spend a, a very considerable amount of effort and energy and government policy and time to trying to ensure that you can earn your living in the markets of the world. Now, you rightly point out the difficulty of some of those markets. What you said about China is cautionary. I admit it. Germany already sells more than we do. It takes a long time to build into those markets, and you've got to choose areas where they can't very quickly produce a copy of what you're doing, for instance, because they're very sharp and move fast, very fast. Uh, India's a difficulty. Um, we've hoped that there would be more reforms under the... Uh, uh, but it look to me as if India is going to move as quickly as I would like to see. You know, sometimes I think you probably none of you realize is that when I decided not to stand in the election of 1992, I was a businessman for over 20 years. And I was in the markets of the world. Textiles, Coates India was a very big part uh, a separate company now. Uh, I was in Russia. I was in the United States. So I have seen it a little bit more from a chairman of a company or on a big international board of people who have to, to actually earn their living in these markets and where they go. It is not easy. And I think you, this is a cautionary tale. You have to make... That's why I use the word endeavour. It isn't going to fall into our lap. Now, on the other question, the first one, immigration... Net migration uh, for the first full year since the referendum was uh, a drop of 100,000, and 80,000 of those were from Europe. Now, what we do not want to turn off from Europe are people who are coming for a period, for an Erasmus scholar, or a three- to five-year period, or contributing uh, in different ways at different times. What we have got to... I think, look at, is can we match that immigration in the sense that it will make a real contribution to our economy? And I think we will need migration laws, and they'll be the next uh, difficult area. 
You said the Brexiteers were keen on uh, immigration being an issue. That is not the case. I can tell you this. There was a very difficult choice. There were two parties vying to be chosen by the Electoral Commission to be the case for leave. One was Nigel Farage's, and the other was an amalgam of politicians, mainly conservative, but not by any means exclusively. And we chose, I would not have joined the Nigel Farage group, because I think it was a sign that you think that immigration is the dominant issue. I think immigration is an important issue. I have no doubt that a lot of people voted for, in the hope that policies would be introduced, a very rapid cutback on immigration. I don't believe this country could do that or should do that. But I do believe we have to face up to the reality that far too many of the people who came in for immigration, and I say an immigration policy has got to be the same for the EU and for Commonwealth countries, and the, too many went into areas where not enough money was going. London is a happy place. You know, racism more or less disappeared. Everybody is almost like Brazil. Uh, but there are parts of this country where immigration and fears of immigration are quite strong. And they're usually where they've not had a lot of money. They're often our equivalent of the American Rust Belt. They're people who are living on much lower wages and have inadequate provision for the increased immigration in terms of primary schools. So they're seeing their children not going to their nearest primary school. They're seeing their casualty and accident emergency services very bad. When you look at these statistics, some are in London, the majority are actually in areas which are this equivalent to the Rust Belt. There's a lot of similarities between what's been going on in America and the Rust Belt and the return of Trump and, the things, and what's happened in this country. There is a deep-seated dissatisfaction in this country with the political structures, and I regret that deeply, and I take my share of responsibility for it. Now, on the other question of um, how you would... Uh, you soft, well, there were a number of issues. Wasn't there? there was soft... Um, uh, power. Well, I think that's uh, a, a euphemism which I practically never use, frankly. I, I think power is almost invariably tough. It may not be military. I don't think that power is uh, by its nature soft. And I think it's basically designed to cop out of the issues. So make up your mind. Do you want serious defence policies, which are self-defence primarily and not aggressive policies? Do you want poverty-led policies? Do you want, uh, if you like, morally-led policies? I, I wouldn't... You don't get me writing very much about soft power. Then on this question of voting, uh, could you um, see any circumstances? And why did, what was turned me off from the Cameron package? Well, the Cameron package was dismissed by Macron the other day of how outrageous that the government should have that the government of the EU countries should have been he used the word blackmail into the Cameron budget. And I believe there was far too much in the Cameron package which had been extracted from them unwillingly. I'll put your answer to Cameron in this way. Just say Cameron, firstly what I had done. I had written a book on how to restructure Europe in 2012. I'd gone to see Osborne about this restructuring, which would allow people to be within the EEA without a commitment to uh, open immigration, which could have opened the door for Turkey, could open the door for a number of other countries in the Bosnia. And if Britain had wanted it, they could have used that too. You don't need free movements of labor 
for a single market. You do need free movement of labour for a eurozone. And I asked to make a distinction in the restructuring of Europe. Osborne saw me, a present, arranged me to see civil servants. Times gave it a fantastic coverage. A lot of people seemed to want to do it. And then Cameron did absolutely nothing about it. When he was faced with this package, just think of what if he said this to the European Council. You've tried your best. In early 19, 2017, you've tried your best. And I'm very grateful to you. And I, I honestly know that you've... But I look at this document, and this is not going to win a referendum. I made a mistake. I should not have said in the manifesto that we have to have this referendum before the end of 2017. I will go back to Parliament, and I will change that to 2019. I'm sure I can get a majority for that. He then had a majority, and I believe he would have done for other people as well, and other parties. And he said, you go and fight your elections. At that time, the Dutch hadn't had their election, French hadn't had theirs, and the Germans hadn't had theirs. And in, we'll come back to this in 2018, and I think we'll get a package which we could have agreed. I think he could have saved his reputation. Uh, he will be dismissed in history as a prime minister uh, for this and many other things, but particularly for this. And I think that would have been a better alternative. And if you like, it's the point about flexibility and being not a slave to consistency. They were not giving willingly. It was a form of words which I had seen so often in these diplomatic documents that meant two or three things to different people. And every now and then, that sort of document has to be crystal clear. And there was no crystal clear belief that you would stop the movement towards ever-increasing federalism. And we have seen it now. Macron has come back in, and we've now seen the German SPD in their negotiations uh, with the um, Christian Democrats that um, federalism is back on the agenda politics. Now, this coalition may not last in Germany. It may not go forward. Macron may not be able to even explain the French people. But it is already a completely different European ethos to the one that signed up for the Cameron document. They didn't sign up in their heart. They still want to, and they are right to pursue it. There's nothing wrong with federalism. It just doesn't, in my view, suit this country. Okay, let's have one, one last round of questions. So, gentleman here has been waiting a while, yeah. And then anybody else here? Okay, yeah. <laughs> one here, and then one there, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, yeah, cheers. Thanks for your speech. Um, my question was really, uh, you've talked quite a lot about global Britain and national endeavour and kind of outward looking. Um, my question was then returning to what should the UK's foreign policy be towards the now federalist EU, the European project or whatever name you want to give it, um, and given the interim period or negotiating or sour grapes of, as a result of the negotiation, how should that foreign policy be directed towards the EU? Um, and if you don't think that's the biggest foreign policy challenge for Britain after Brexit, I mean, what, in your view, would be then? Cheers. OK, and then... Yeah, and what was your first priority? You didn't give it. So I thought... You, I'm, I'm not making a point, but I thought I might have missed it. OK. okay yeah. the gentleman asked at the front about immigration. Um, so I'm British, but I'm one of the 1.2 million British citizens who live in the EU. 
And throughout the waves of negotiations, we've seen our rights be slowly eroded. This deal that you mentioned that was made in early December that you praised is unfortunately disastrous for our rights and represents a real loss of livelihood, not only for us, but also for the EU citizens who live in the UK. So they are faced with this draconian prospect of the settled status proposal from the Home Office um, and yeah, just a general drastic loss of rights. So my question for you is... Where do people like me fit into your vision of a successful Brexit? Thank you. Can I ask what, what country you're... Oh, I'm in Germany. In Germany, okay. Um, just two, two comments, really. One is, in my view, the whole question of a referendum is profoundly undemocratic. Um, as you've said yourself, you've been voted out of part twice... Uh, if you don't like a government, you can vote them out. We have a referendum which is advisory, it has the narrowest of margins, and it's the word of God. You can't challenge it. It's the will of the people. It is not the will of the people. The will of the people, 48%, were anti it. And if we can't change our mind, uh, if we can change our mind about getting rid of a government, in my view, we can change our mind about getting rid of a, a referendum. That's one point. Secondly, there is absolutely nothing stopping us trade with the rest of the world on the terms you want to trade, trade after the, we leave the EU. Uh, now, you can trade with India and, and China on WTO terms now. What is going to be the advantage to us of leaving the biggest free trade area we're in with lots of other free trade agreements that the EU has with the rest of the world to be on our own as a small island offshore Europe? Uh, well, perhaps the answer to that is we are a small island offshore Europe, and from that stems a great many of our attitudes of the British people to Europe, and has been there ever since it started to be debated in 1962. I was adopted as a prospective Labour candidate for Torrington in 1962. There was no chance of me winning. My, my deposit was the only issue of any interest. And I watched this issue. Uh, the country was divided then. It has stayed divided all these periods of time. And gradually, successive prime ministers, successive parties, gave referendums for certain aspects, not least at Maastricht, that we can't go in now without a, Euros, uh, without a referendum. Now, you may dislike it, but that's what your politicians did for you. And that was in 1997, both uh, Major, uh, Ashdown, and Blair, all committed to a referendum on it. Now, you can't have both your system, whereby you vote in your governments and you have that system. They also need to tell you roughly what they're going to do. That's really what a manifesto is about. I mean, perhaps you prefer a blank sheet of paper. But they make those decisions because they think that that's a way to win votes. And therefore, this is the referendum has come in it is thought by Ted Heath in uh, 1972 that the best way of, the um, 71, that the best way of healing the disputes in Northern Ireland was to offer a referendum to the people of Northern Ireland that they could not be merged in with the South without a referendum. That has stuck ever since under all different governments since all this time and looks like it's going to stay in for even longer. Now, I mean, I think referendums have to be carefully used, and I'm not impersonally against them. But what is the point of having them if you, don't, if you ignore them? 
So a government has to ignore them. Cameron put through, at government's expense, a leaflet arguing why they should vote to leave, to remain, which cost nine million pounds, but said to them, if you vote against, the government will implement the policy. Now that's a historic fact. So I don't think you can buck that just easily. And I, of course you can change your mind. I, I absolutely agree with it. And I don't, I hope I've said nothing to say that people should shut up or that they have to give up their views. But in a democracy, you go to some extent with the flow. You've got to take account of the fact that you live in a democracy. Most people shrug their shoulders the day after the general election and get on with their life. They've, they've not won. And, you know, that's what you have to do. Democracy has to have a, at an end point. And that's really what we do it. We sometimes do it with this, we sometimes do it with that. There are different mechanisms. I'm personally very strongly supportive still of proportional representation, but not AV. Don't come in with that. But we had a referendum that killed off not only AV, but proportional representation for probably 20 to 30 years. Now, we do use referendums when we want them and when we don't want them. So I, I don't really think that's, um, you know, helpful, really. I, I, I can only say that. I, is there one more question? So there's a couple of, um, there was just a lady here basically asking, what about her rights as a British citizen in Europe? They're going to be basically oh, yes. well, considerably I, diminished. No, I didn't do that. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't too. I have, I'm married to an American and uh, her father was half German. So I well understand mixed nationalities and uh, this is, I think, a very important point for young people and certainly with my own children. And... Um, I wanted, as soon as the referendum was turned, to announce that uh, everybody who was here had British rights, absolutely, completely and totally. Uh, the government were against that. It's become a little clearer why they were against it, because it was clear that there were different EU countries that wanted to have different, EU pol different policies to an overall EU consensus. And we took the judgment, I think the government sensibly, that we needed a system that would operate in here and everywhere. We had to be fair to the British people who were living in Spain, and we had to be fair to those people who were Germans or French or others who were living here. I thought most people were accepting that. I, I, you have to have a cut-off point somewhere, and I suppose you're worried about your uh, husband if you're married or your a boyfriend who might be a different race. There is a sort of feeling that you really ought to be able to take your immediate family with you on these things. Uh, that's, is that the one that works? Am I allowed you? to? Uh, yeah. It's more, for example, someone living in Germany right now, uh, under this December... Do, I mean, I'm completely British. I'm not married. Mm. don't have any German yeah. connections other than friends. Um, but for... The Brits living abroad, this represents a huge loss of livelihood because effectively what's going to happen is our right to live in the EU is going to be restricted to one EU country. Now, I know people who have businesses that chase contracts over five different EU countries. And after Brexit, they won't be able to do that. They're going to lose their business. And that's quite aside from the issue of family reunification, of people being allowed to bring spouses back to the UK and not have to go through some kind of humiliating conduct check, which is what the government is currently supposing, um, proposing. So it's much more than the issue of dual nationality and identity, although that's a very 
emotive issue. It's about a real and concrete loss of livelihood and future prospects, especially for young people, as you say. Yes. Well, uh, free entry is, a, you know, for many young people, is a very great release. And if we had more time to look at it, and uh, maybe we could look at other ones. There's a youth mobility scheme, which is being pushed by some people at the moment, uh, to extend that to EU citizens between the age of 18 and 30. I don't know whether that, but that's been pushed by a pretty reputable organization, um, migration uh, on migration policy, and maybe we should look at that. I, I think that that's going to be the next internal debate in this country, is what is going to be the terms of a migration policy, how do we deal with it? This is also one of the reasons I'd quite like to be in the EEA for a while. Uh, we could start to do some experiments on that. At the moment, we won't be able to do anything for uh, the next three and a half years. But I think that's going to be the next question. You could make things more attractive for students and of student age. Uh, you could... The overall one, overall one, everybody seems to agree, is that if you can show, as in your case where you got a business reason why you need to switch to another country, you would be able to do that very easily because we would be after those same people as they were and we would have the most relaxed rules possible. So, and this is what exists in the world as it is. Americans have that. So I think that what we're saying is we're, let Parliament choose this migration policy. Let Parliament deal with the dissatisfactions in Sunderland or Newcastle or in Halifax or these things bring this back home in terms of our own legislation, but be imaginative about what are the needs of the economy, what are the needs of um, casual labour, what are the needs of certain agricultural industries, what are the needs of science and technology. And I think we've got to be fairly selfish about that on uh, what contributes to our economy and our capacity to sell goods, and they would be given a special priority. But I think it's, um, that's a debate to come. But I think it's the politicians who are in favour of Brexit, in my experience, are very cautious about migration, uh, certainly on the Leave campaign. Uh, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, you know, I've got no time for their politics overall. But they are both of them people who would be quite happy not to have a migration bill or very minimalist. Uh, and I think that... You should not put this all into... I don't deny that quite a lot of people voted on this reason. I, I, mo voting motivation is hugely mixed on all of these issues, whether in general elections or in referendums. But I don't think... The facts are very clear that uh, people coming into this country, immigration into this country, has been an overall good over the centuries, and a great many people understand it. They understand it better in London than they do in the north and in other parts of the country. And we have to go and try and explain that and make them feel that they gain from the prosperity that comes from these sort of people coming and contributing to our economy. And we fail to do that. And we've got to address in this debate, it's not just about trade and all of this, it's also satisfying our own system, country that the system is, of our democracy is fair, that they are being listened to, they are participating in the overall wealth. We're a federation, really, within the UK, and I personally would like to see us dealing with the federal constitution and, and in that process help some of the divisions in Scotland and in Wales and in Northern Ireland. 
Okay, well, I'm going to call it to a halt there because um, we've run out of time. Um, but Lord Owen's book is available outside, and he's got, he's got a bit of time to sign some copies. So if you'd like to, uh, to buy the book and have a copy signed afterwards, please do just join us around the side there. But again, this is a debate which, divide, which does divide us. Um, there are clear differences of opinion in this room as well as in the country. But I want to thank you for coming this evening, but particularly to thank Lord Owen for giving us the benefit of his extensive wisdom and his, and his thoughts on these issues. So thank you in the usual way, Lord Owen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.